Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Escape the Ordinary with Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Sponsor of the Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And our news, and we've told you this over the last couple of weeks, is that we've joined Instagram. So go there and follow us at IT Women's Podcast and leave us a message if you like. I hope you've been enjoying yourselves and and meeting up in small groups and the other little freedoms that have been happening. I notice much more cars on the road, which is a bit depressing, but also a few little businesses open that weren't open before. And slowly, slowly, we are getting back to whatever the new normal is going to be. Today is an important day in the history of Ireland. Um, It's the second anniversary of repeal the 8th. It's two years since so many of us voted for women to have the choice to end their pregnancies or to not end their pregnancies, basically to have freedom, reproductive freedom. And I know not all of our listeners voted yes, but there's no doubt that women in Ireland have more freedom now than they've had at any other point in the history of the state. And we think that is something worth celebrating and worth acknowledging. I actually wrote my column about it today and I wanted to share that with you as we look back on a day that changed this country for women and girls forever. Something that's been a regular delight in the last few months has been taking delivery of the pandemic post. Whether it's the arrival of a crucial part for the bread machine someone had inadvertently chucked in the bin or the opening of a package containing a book or a boredom-killing game, every knock on the door signals great excitement in our house. Unlike what used to happen in our pre-pandemic lives, the post person doesn't need to knock twice. Nor do they need to leave a message directing us to collect our package somewhere else, because there is always somebody around to take in the delivery. Sure, where else would we be? This postal appreciation is something I hope we don't leave behind. Our daughters have learnt to write letters, replying to correspondence from their little cousins Shifra and Isolt, writing thank you cards to their good parents, Paul and Mary. One day they received a beautifully written note from their friends Emily and Lucy in County Leash, filling us in on their adorable new puppies and long walks in the woods. As it happens, on this blustery May morning, the sheets performing a lively jig out on the line, one daughter is sitting at the kitchen table, writing a letter to a boy in her class, thanking him for sticking up for her when something unpleasant happened at school. I never said thank you at the time, she said the other day in a worried voice, admonishing herself. I tried to help her understand that when sad or shocking things happen, sometimes we are caught off guard and don't react the way we usually would or how people might expect us to. 
we suggested she could write him a letter. Wouldn't it be too late, she asked. It's never too late, we said. I got a lovely bit of pandemic post myself the other day. An unexpected card. There was a golden peacock on the front and inside some handwriting I vaguely recognised. A Polaroid picture was tucked inside the card. A smiley portrait of two sisters, Rachel and me. Rachel won't mind me saying that this is totally out of character for her. It took a pandemic, as we are all fond of saying lately. She writes as much herself in the note. A bit late and a bit out of the blue, but when I found this photo over the COVID lockdown, it made me remember all the fantastic, crazy, happy times we've had together. It was my big sister Rachel who gave me the idea to keep a lockdown jar filled with the things everyone in the house is longing to do when this is all over. One of the wishes in my jar, she wrote, is to make sure I keep in touch with you more often when things get back to normal. Hopefully you will oblige me. She said other things too, about how proud she was of me. It doesn't take much this weather, but I sat looking at the photo and I remembered and I cried. Today, May 25th, is the second anniversary of the day that 66.4% of us voted for the Eighth Amendment to be repealed so that women in Ireland could have reproductive freedom. It's an important day in the history of the state. An important day for me as one of the thousands of women and girls forced to travel secretly to London or elsewhere for an abortion. Years later, I wrote about that experience in an attempt to reduce the stigma surrounding a procedure that is a necessary reality in the lives of many women. I will be thinking about a lot of people on this anniversary. Of Savita Halepanavar, who died and in dying galvanised so many of us to activism. Of Kitty Holland, who told not only Savita's story, but her own. Of Tara Flynn, Lucy Watmo, Janet Nihuloan, Saoirse Long and every woman who courageously and often at unseen personal cost shared their stories. Of the women and girls north and south, some of them vulnerable immigrants who were taken through the courts. Of male politicians such as Simon Harris and Micheál Martin and Leo Varadkar who, on educating themselves, changed their minds on the issue. Men who stopped judging women and became our champions, ensuring abortion will be provided as healthcare as it always should have been. I'll be thinking of the people on the Citizens' Assembly and of everyone in Together for Yes and of individual activists such as Alva Smith, Gay Edwards, Anna Cosgrave, Claudia Harrow, Maria Fleming and Claire Daly. I'll be thinking of every man, woman, trans person and child who ever wore a badge or a jumper or helped when help was so badly needed. And I'll be thinking of my sister, Rachel. It was Rachel who booked our flights to London more than 20 years ago. It was Rachel who dropped me at that clinic in a black taxi. It was Rachel who hugged me and held my hand afterwards. It was Rachel who kept whatever she felt about my abortion to herself, respecting that I was the only person who could or should make a decision that would have such a significant influence on the rest of my life. I could say it to her face, from a safe social distance, 
I could write it in a letter, adding another bit of unexpected pandemic post to the pile. But today, of all the days, I want to say it publicly, while also acknowledging the unconditional love and kindness shown to so many of us by our sisters, brothers, friends, boyfriends, husbands, cousins, mothers, aunts, uncles, colleagues and healthcare workers who, in so many quiet ways, offered comfort along a lonely road. You all know who you are. Thank you. And thanks, Rach. It's never too late. And also to say that the Together for Yes documentary, When Women Won, directed by Anna Rogers, is going to be available to view for free on the IFI player until Sunday, May 31st. So just Google the IFI player and you'll be able to watch that documentary, which will bring back all the memories of that incredible time two years ago. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. Coming up later in the podcast, we're going to be talking to an inspiring dairy woman, Geraldine Quigley, who spoke to me about writing a book despite the barriers of her working class background and about a new scheme available to writers from disadvantaged, minority or otherwise diverse backgrounds. She's a great woman, Geraldine. But before we hear from her, another writer we are big fans of on the podcast, Nisha Dolan, came on to talk to us about her debut novel, Exciting Times. An extract of the book was first published by Stinging Fly when Sally Rooney was the editor and it tells the story of a young Irish woman in Hong Kong teaching English to children and becoming embroiled in a love triangle. It's fantastic and we were delighted to talk to Nisha Dolan. Enjoy. So having a book out in a pandemic, what's that been like? Um, Pretty good. (laughs) I don't really have anything to compare it to so I'm maybe not feeling the same sense of grief and loss as if I'd already had loads out. And you had a book launch sort of online? Yeah, we teamed up with Rixo, which was really fun. So I did a Q&A for that and I got to wear a sequined dress. So, you know, what, what more can you want, really? Exactly. And did they let you keep the sequined dress? Crucially, they did. <laughs> that and there's a lot lower risk of the sequins going missing when I'm just going around the house in it. So I think it's worked out for the best for everyone, really. Tell us a bit about yourself before we get on to talking about exciting times. You grew up in Dublin. Yeah. I don't think I'm that interesting as a person. You know, I had a childhood, but (laughs) who among us has not? And then um, I went to college, which not everyone does, but I feel like we overplay the significance of that in writing a book, which then makes it sound like you need to do that to write when, when you don't at all. And then I went to Hong Kong, which you also don't need to do to write a book, but is maybe less inscribed in public imagination or something that you need to do. And then I wrote a novel and now I am discussing this novel with various people inside my home in a pandemic, which wasn't necessarily where I thought my life was going, but on the whole, pretty good. Do you remember um, what age you were or what stage you were at when you started putting words together in a way and you, you started to think, I really like doing this or this is something I would like to do? Yeah, like, I guess I find it useful to separate the career sense of that from the personal fulfillment sense. I've always enjoyed playing around with language, but I suppose I just, 
I never knew any professional writers. Very few people do because there are very few people who can write full time. So I never envisaged that as a specific occupation to gear my life choices towards. So it was a hobby, but so was drawing, so was taking photos. So yeah, I always liked doing it, but I never saw myself as a writer. And I still struggle to fully comprehend what that means because there are so many possible definitions and so many of the writers that I respect don't write full time. So it'd be really weird for me to take that as the definition of one, something that excluded people whose work I really admire. But when was there that possibility, perhaps, that it would be some, become something that you might try and make your living at? And I know that might not always be the case because at some point you might have to do other work. But at the moment, you're making your living from writing. Yeah, I enjoy that. But I think a lot of that is just that I haven't enjoyed other jobs that I've had. So um, I can't say how much of that is a specific vocation for this thing and how much of it is just that I'm really bad at customer service and (laughs) anything else that relies on being continually nice to strangers who don't necessarily see as they're equal. And when you went to college, you went to study English, is that right? Yeah. Uh, so when you were doing that, was it was that from the love of books and the love of reading and just lo- the wanting to learn more rather than any specific? It's not exactly, I suppose, a degree you do going and then I'm going to do this afterwards. Yeah, I think I always knew that I have the kind of brain where I really struggle to take a casual and practical interest in stuff that doesn't innately spark something. So in theory, I could have looked at the options and go, it would be safer to do medicine or something. And regardless of whether I had any innate skill for that kind of thing, I just wouldn't have been able to make myself do it. So the only option was things that I was interested in. And the alternative was don't do a degree, which I think is an under-discussed option. Like my brother hasn't done one and he's really smart and successful. But as it was for me, yeah, English just seemed like a good way to spend four years and emerge with some kind of qualification. And how did you find your college years? I didn't, well, I wasn't lucky enough to go to Trinity. It was always in my head that, oh God, if I went to college, I'd love to go to Trinity. But I went to Maynooth and I just didn't, I didn't like college. You know, I got there and I just felt very uh, lonely. Um, I think because I was living in digs and I, it was the first time I'd really been away from sort of my home life and things like that. Did it all click for you very quickly or did you find it difficult? I think aspects of it clicked, but not necessarily the ones that were most helpful in a given moment. So I get really into student journalism or QSOC or debating or like 20 different campus activities, um, which weren't necessarily what I was about to be examined on. So I think I muddled along with that same inability to divert my focus. But if it was on something that happened to help me, then well and good. And that happened enough that I was able to get through it. So I had a good time, but I think quite a scattered time. And you went to Oxford then as well. Yeah. Which is really interesting. And we'll talk about exciting times and the kind of influence. I think your observations about um, very well-to-do English people are so interesting and spot on. Um, And while you were there, did you do a lot of people watching? Did you feel like the outsider very much? Um, I think yes and no, because at post-grad level, it's a bit less all that, just because it's more international. And a lot of the, um, so the main character from Oxford, for people who haven't read the book, is called Julie. And a lot of that kind of type who go on to city jobs do that because they did their undergrad degree to get one of those jobs. They're not necessarily heavily into academia. So 
you know, in my masters and stuff, there were a lot fewer of those kind of types. But yeah, I think I kind of people watch wherever I go, which then becomes this cycle of like, when I make my next decision, there is that inevitable consideration at the back of my head of like, these people are going to end up on what I write, aren't they? But you just kind of have to disregard that or else you'll find yourself like going looking for future novels. But I wrote the first draft before I was at Oxford because you just meet so many of those types anywhere you go. Like, I don't know how familiar people outside Trinity are with the concept of Team England, should I explain? Yes. Okay, so every year at Trinity, a raft of English public school boys arrive because they want to go to a famous old university and Trinity has appealed for whatever reason. And they're all accommodated along the same corridor in Trinity halls. And uh, it's not that all English people at Trinity behave this way, but the ones who do are more obvious in their Englishness and so get labelled Team England. And you definitely get that same flavour for that Oxford stereotype without having to set foot in the place or even set foot outside Ireland. They just come and disseminate it right for you and you're under at Trinity. And they obviously then influenced some of the characters in Exciting Times. Yeah, like in the way that you pick the most prominent traits from people. And I think it's a completely fair description of a lot of the English characters that they're caricatures, but that's because the minor characters in anyone's life appear to you in caricature. You just remember the most prominent features that they display. Like, I'm sure if I got to know a lot of those people in depth, I'd be able to give a layered portrayal of them or whatever, but you can't give a layered portrayal of everyone you meet. And if the most immediate thing they decide to present to you is that they went to a London day school, then whatever, fill in the book. So Exciting Times is set um, in Hong Kong and you have been there for as working as a, as a teacher yourself? Yeah. Of English. So it, the main character is Ava and she's in this, I suppose love triangle is the word that people are talking about. I don't know, I, maybe maybe you would say that as well. It's a, it's a relationship where there's one person having a relationship with two people. One is a man, Julian, and one is this lovely woman called Edith. And she's trying to figure out what she's doing, basically. Because the relationship with the man, Julian, isn't really very healthy in some ways. But it's, you know, it's hitting the spot for her sexually and, and that kind of thing. But Edith has a bit more, it's got warmth, it's got more emotional layers. And she's trying to figure out where she wants to, to be. It's a wonderful kind of coming of age story and a, a love story too. Where did you get the inspiration for for the sort of setting it in Hong Kong and and looking and being that kind of outsider person in a very interesting city like that? Yeah, I think probably it's difficult to be somewhere as cool as Hong Kong and not want to set things there. And, you know, I don't mean that in a romanticised way, just the very little figures of the city are so cool. Like, I I mean, I was intrigued by the mid-levels escalators and the combinations of shops where you'd have a heavily globalised presence like Starbucks and then some equally famous local names just side by side. And I suppose from there, the rest just followed. Like, it's not that I had a huge plan that I then executed. It's if you set something in Hong Kong, then particular types of relationships and people will come out as you do so. You know, not because everyone's a banker or whatever, but enough people are that it makes sense to have a character like that, that kind of thing. 
Mm. We don't read a lot of um, sort of bisexual romances in, in, I mean, I haven't, I don't think I've read one that's as kind of what I would say ordinary in a way. I, I didn't read it and have all these thoughts about, oh my God, she's sleeping with a woman or, do you know, the, the sexuality part wasn't as important as the emotional part, which I think you did really well. Was it important to you to, to, to portray that kind of a relationship or again, did that just happen because you were interested in it? Yeah, I think the relationship with either came about just because I realised that the one with Julian wasn't turning into a huge love story. And maybe if I wanted to write a more traditional novel, I would have been like, how do I make her fall deeply in love with him or whatever? But I just didn't want to do that. I was like, I think this is the extent of what this relationship is going to reach. So then maybe it made sense to have her be with a woman for I suppose more contrast in how that relationship was structured because when you have a character who's so limited in how they relate to other people it would have been a lot harder to establish any meaningful contrast if she'd gone for another man because I think most men in their 20s are to some degree a Julian not all quite have it quite as badly as he does but I think there's a level of emotional limitation that is um, fairly widespread so to have someone unspool that plot of the main character coming to terms with her own feelings, it probably did make sense of a woman. But I, I'm really just reverse engineering this. Like, I just completely go for it. And then if it works out, fine. And if it doesn't, let's start again. That's yeah. the nice thing about writing quickly. You never feel like there's any huge onus to get it right at the initial point of decision because just scrap it and move on if it doesn't work out. Do you tend to write quite quickly? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think in a way, because I'm so much of a planner, like if I didn't write quickly, I just wouldn't write at all. I'm the kind of person who could spend a million years plotting a novel and so I don't because like I'd, I'd still have no words at the end of that. I'd just be sitting there with all these maps in my head. Um, I think what's interesting about Ava is her constantly watching, uh, we talked about people watching earlier, but observing, you know, what are the correct mores? What way do people behave? Is she behaving in the right way? Often she's not behaving in the, I put it in inverted commas, right way. And she's very hyper aware of that. And I was, I've been watching you on Twitter talking about your autism and in various interviews, because that's something that you kind of realised about yourself after you'd written it, I think. Is that right? Um, it's kind of a long story. So I was provisionally diagnosed in my teens, but I wasn't there for an autism assessment. So it was just noted in the report, Nisha has autistic traits. But I think the way I chose to interpret that at the time was like, oh, well, everyone's on the spectrum, which completely isn't true. Um, but, so it was kind of in the back of my mind that I was probably different to other people, but I wasn't consciously coming to terms with it as autism. I guess, and I mean, this is an analogy that I wouldn't make if it weren't two things that I'd personally experienced, but it was a bit like how it's not that one day I thought I was straight and the next day I thought I was queer. It's a really, really gradual thing. But when I wrote the book, I definitely wasn't attaching the word autistic to explain any of my experiences, but I suppose I was conscious on another level that maybe certain things took a level of effort and forethought for me that they didn't for other people. And in the knowledge that I couldn't maybe convincingly recreate the headspace of someone who gets all that stuff right. As to be fair, no one does 100% of the time. I was like, why don't I go with thought patterns that are more familiar to me? And if other people feel the same way, that's good because they can connect. If they don't feel the same way, that's good because they can see how it feels to feel different. And either way, you're doing something. 
Yeah, no, that's exactly it because, and it's a bit of, for me, was a bit of both. It was relating to some of it and just having more of an insight and understanding into what it must be like to be that kind of person. And and that's what you want reading a novel. You don't really, you don't need to like them necessarily. You don't need to be like them either, but it has to feel authentic and real. And uh, has it been liberating for you to be very open about your autism and all of that? Yeah, I definitely feel like people cut me slack and even when they don't I'm able to cut myself slack and know that they should have cut me slack so it just makes everything that much easier and it's interesting as well in terms of stuff like unspoken norms when I'm in new areas like literary stuff that's led yet another new social context for me but unlike previous ones I feel a lot more comfortable just asking people I trust am I doing the right thing now is there a rule that no one stated or consciously acknowledged that you should be doing this or whatever? And more often than not, the answer is, hmm, I'd never thought about it that directly before. But yeah, you're right. There is a rule that says that. So I think it's like you say, it's partly relatable, but not completely for people who aren't autistic. Because the things that I worry about are often the things that other people worry about. But it's more non-autistic people don't need to worry as extensively or worry in different ways where they can kind of intuitively get at the right answer without having to unpick it in quite as logical a way mm. whereas I like very literally have to follow it right to Z and then having followed it to Z I'm able to explain it really explicitly and then they're like oh wow when you put it that way <laughs> when when you were a child you became a vegetarian quite young I think yeah. is that would you put that into the autism sort of traits as well or is that so different or is it hard to separate them I'm just yeah. wondering like at eight to decide I'm not eating meat it's it's quite radical yeah I think autism is generally what I'd attach to the process rather than the outcome but then it's also in how you deal with the outcome so it's not that all autistic kids have really left values or really social justice concerns or whatever but I think it is quite autistic to have a realization and then not be affected by, by what people around you are doing. So once it was in my head that I was eating an animal and I didn't want to be doing that, it was completely irrelevant whether that was normal and it was completely irrelevant what anyone else wanted me to do. And I think if you're lucky like me and have understanding parents, even if they don't know the child's autistic, they tend to realise quite early that when the kid has something like that in their head, there's just no point arguing. So you have to just honour it and go along with it. So, yeah... I think the content definitely differs from autistic person to autistic person and people have, you know, the range of beliefs that anyone autistic or not will have, but that independent mindset and the ability to kind of have a self-contained judgment of stuff, definitely autistic, I think. And that's why you'll find autistic people having new insights in so many fields, I think. And you um, are attached and passionate about lots of social justice issues, like you said. Ava um, uses her abortion fund to go to Hong Kong. And I, I thought that was such a brilliant part of the book where, you know, you talk so openly about how it was just a matter of course, friends had saved up money in case they were in the situation where they needed an abortion and needed to travel. And thankfully now that's no longer the case that we, you know, abortion funds aren't, aren't needed, but you put that in and there's, there's queer stuff in there and there's, um, she's quite the, there's a lot of talk about capitalism and there's a socialist sort of leaning through it all. So are those all things that are you're very um, concerned with and that's why you wanted to put them in? Yeah, not in a 
polemic kind of way. I didn't want to become a communist by reading the book, but it's just so much a part of the texture of life for me to have opinions on the world that if the characters didn't have the ones that I have, they need to have opinions of some sort. And I think that comes through too as well. Like there are characters who equally vociferously express opinions that I don't agree with at all, but it's part of them being realistic humans to me that they would think about politics just as much. So, you know, Julian is very scathing about my love for Corbyn, but uh, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, it, it, it's important to have it in because in the real world, everyone has opinions on politics, even when they don't think of it in those terms. You know, whether you should have to pay a water tax is an opinion on politics and I just wouldn't believe characters who didn't think those things one way or another. Mm. And in terms of climate change, you made a very sort of, I suppose, a big decision, especially as someone who might be, you know, before the pandemic would have been maybe traveling around a lot for book related stuff to just um, to not fly and to go by rail and sail. So when you have a, an issue that you're really concerned with and you have thought deeply a lot about, do you tend to take action around things rather than some people? We just, we talk a lot or, you know, we try to do a little bit, but it doesn't go as deep and we don't kind of change our lives in a radical way. Yeah, I think it's a mixed blessing just being very internally driven and motivated because once you've started having a load of moral dissonance about something, it's really difficult to just shelve it. So for me, it genuinely is easier not to fly than to fly and have in the back of my head that I think I'm doing something wrong. And it's really difficult to express that to non-autistic people without it sounding self-righteous because for them it would be the other way around. They would be consciously reminding themselves that they're doing something that they think is wrong when they'd rather just forget it. Whereas I just can't even imagine what it's like to have a brain like that. And Obviously, as a human in our post, well, not post, our late capitalist hellscape, you know, I have to live with all sorts of moral dissonance in everything that I do. So it's not that I don't also have a filter, but maybe my filter isn't as effective. So there are some things where I just give up on trying to filter and I just change my ways. Did it help when someone like Greta Thunberg came along for you to, to, to see someone like her? And to, you're a vegan now, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Um, someone like obviously so young but so uh, assured and passionate and knowledgeable and clear thinking in it was that an inspiration yeah like I'm, I'm sure you feel this way too and I think every generation of Irish women feels this way whenever you meet someone who's been held back for similar reasons to you but they're a lot younger and you just see them moving through the world more confidently it's that mixed feeling of you're so delighted for them but you also see how different it could have been for you but then what you can do with that is go well I'm still here I, I still have plenty of life in me why not just take that as my example because when you've learned so many actively harmful things about yourself and about what you're able to achieve you can take your lessons from someone who at least doesn't have those actively damaging beliefs about themselves and that's as much of an education as following the example of someone else who might have positive views about themselves that you can take. So, you know, I look up to older women too who've moved through a world that's been way less safe than the one I've been lucky enough to be in. But I think you can also look at someone like Greta who just had less ableist nonsense to cast off in the first place and just go, right, if at age 12 I just stuck with my extremely autistic self, had changed absolutely nothing about myself that I didn't absolutely have to, 
how would I be acting? And, you know, it's not that I'm doing a fraction of what she is for her cause, but definitely that attitude that the world needs to change is one that I found really positive with my own experiences of autism. I wanted to ask you about Sally Rooney because she published the first bit of Exciting Times in Stinging Fly when she was editor. And obviously there's a whole, uh, I don't know, it's incredible that she's written two books and there's this thing about her, which books are brilliant. And Normal People Now is on the television. They're such a useful. How useful was it to have the support of Sally? And did you go to college together? Were you there at the same time? Yeah, she was a little bit ahead of me. And before writing, she was also kind of a debating mentor of mine so it's this whole thing but yeah no she's just on a personal level really lovely warm person I know loads of people in the Dublin literary scene would say similarly but um in terms of writing I think I'm quite solitary in how I pursue it so for me it wasn't really a case of having any particular role models it was more I want to make something on its own terms but it was definitely a huge confidence boost when she read an early version of the novel because at minimum it meant it wasn't so bad that someone couldn't get through it. And to be honest, that was the main concern. So I didn't necessarily need to um, give it to someone with her level of achievement to get that. I probably should have given it to someone else to meet that incredibly low bar. But um, that was how it panned out. <laughs> Um, I see Zadie Smith up there on your bookshelves as well. I'm, I was just joking with you earlier. I hope there's nothing controversial up there that's going to get you into trouble if I take a picture. Um, but are there novelists working at the moment who either inspire you or just that you love to read? Or um, are there a lot of dead novelists that you're uh, more interested in? Um, I think a bit of both. And Zadie Smith is a really useful bridge for me in that respect. I loved her description of her motivation for writing on beauty, which was to take the E.M. Foster kind of books that she enjoyed and put more people like her in them. And my representation concerns are obviously quite different, but I think that approach still drives a lot of what I do. And Emma Donoghue and Sarah Waters have been really inspirational to me on the LGBT front in that respect. But then people working now, I don't know if admire or seek to emulate is the right terminology, but I'm really interested in Natasha Moshfeg and just her complete lack of need to do any of the social media nice girl stuff. Um, her open contempt for the how to write a novel guy that led her to write the novel that got her book shortlisted. Just, <laughs> I mean... It, whenever I worry about how I come across or if I've been too blunt, which is the constant pitfall for autistic people I just look at someone like that and I'm like she wrote some cracking books and she can say things that make people actively dislike her and not attempt to pander at any level and people will still recognize that she wrote good books I think it's really good to have that kind of just instance of what you can get away with Mm. Uh, you're, you're, there's a big attention on you now a bit of a spotlight you're kind of in the wake of sort of Sally's couple of books there's this urge to pin, put people together and oh it's the next Sally Rooney and another young fresh voice from Ireland does that irritate you or are you okay with that because it gives you a little bit more of a, a kind of, of a way for people to talk about you I think I just I can't use this phrase because Boris ruined it, but take it on the chin. <laughs> like, <laughs> inevitably, if there's a really successful novelist, then people are going to seek comparisons 
as a way of being nice because their way of talking about books is so different to the way of someone who reads a lot of them or even if they read a lot of them they're trying to describe them for people who mightn't so often when people say like the next Ali Rooney it, it has no more literary specificity attached to it than like the next JK Rowling so I, I try not to think too much about it one thing that I'm interested in, Sally, who I don't know at all, I actually gatecrashed her book, her first book at launch, because I got the galley proof of that book, Conversation with Friends, and I read it in a few hours, and I just couldn't believe how good it was. And then when I saw this um, launch was going on, I wanted to go and meet the person who'd written the book, and I went along, and I, I introduced myself, and I shook her hand, because I just, it, it's not, it doesn't happen that often, um, you know, where you have that reaction to a book, I think. Um, but what I, it was interesting about her is that she she doesn't seem to have kind of be milking the kind of fame and the stuff that's going on. There's a lot of fuss around her. I mean, when you've got Taylor Swift uh, saying, I liked this book, you know, that's quite a big deal. But she's gone off Twitter and she's keeping quite a low, I think, she's doing the interviews and the things that she's asked to do. But I I really sort of admired that as well. She doesn't seem to be kind of wanting to become this star. She's letting the work speak for itself. Do you kind of feel like that's something you aspire to as well? Or do you like the kind of, you know, being out there and in the world you're you're quite vocal on Twitter for example yeah I don't know I think I don't aspire to a particular public image it's just more about what I think will make me happy in the moment so I don't really have a strategy planned for anything it's more just if I felt that Twitter was no longer making me happy then I'd log off although and we all say that and a little bit few of us succeed yeah what are you writing at the moment Anisha and when can we expect the the next book so there's a saga with that where I have the second one written, but it's completely miserable. And sometimes misery is a nice space to set up camp and sometimes you're in a global pandemic. So I'm writing a happier third one and it might be that when I'm ready to return to the misery, the second book will be the second published book, or maybe I'll just keep it on my laptop forever and the third book will be the second published one. So um, no idea when to expect that, but I'm happy. But is, is the third one, or it could be the second one that we see, is, is it is it much happier? Like, is it a totally different uh, vibe to the, the one that you say is miserable? Yeah, I mean, I should probably add that the things that make me happy mightn't be the things that make other people happy. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting times is full of things that make me happy and I don't know if that's necessarily the feedback that everyone would give but um, yeah really different vibes. The boat told with first person narrators although the second one was initially third person so it's kind of mid switching it over to first when I put it aside for now but probably the biggest difference is the second person uh, the second book has an explicitly mentally ill narrator in a way where once you've decided that about them and you're aware of all the implications it then becomes really draining to write in their headspace and I think that's always going to be the roadblock in writing about mental illness right because to be accurate to how completely miserable it is you have to be working on it when you're not there because certainly for myself if I'm in any kind of depths of anything I'm not going to be writing a novel right Mm. so you're trying to recreate a space that you don't actually want to be in that presumably the reader doesn't want to be in but to be accurate to it it to some degree has to be one that no one wants to be in and still exists but then if you don't write about it then it doesn't get represented so Mm. maybe 
yeah, resolve that, maybe I won't. Maybe we'll never get the mentally ill novel and we'll just get a happy one. And and the so-called happy one, because I'm sure there's lots of things going on in it, not just happiness. Uh, can I ask, is it set in Dublin? Because I'm really interested to see Dublin through your eyes as a novelist, actually. Uh, yeah, no, it's set in London, I'm afraid. That's OK, London will do it for, until you get round to Dublin, you know, because I know you will get round to Dublin. But London's close enough, so that's interesting. And it's quite contemporary too, is it? Yeah. And um, you don't have a working title for that, do you, at this stage? No, um, I, I think I try to decide things like that as late as possible, because if I decide them early, then the whole thing starts circling around it, which can be pretty limiting. So tell me about your lockdown life now. How has this experience um, been working for you? Are there things that you're finding? It sounds like you're a very self-aware person. You've thought deeply a lot about who you are and how you think and why you are the way you are. But have you learned anything in this time about yourself? Yeah, I think having habits and routines is important to me, but what I tend to do is just focus on the content of those and not on the fact that it's a habit or a routine. So for the first couple of weeks, I was like, oh, I can't do this thing, which then means I can't do this thing. When once you just rewire your brain a little bit, you can find another thing that prompts you to do the thing. So in this case, the very mundane thing of making my own coffee instead of going and buying one and then writing. So yeah I suppose just being aware that I can shake things up and it might take a bit of adjustment but I'll be okay but otherwise I think I've probably learned a lot less than people whose life was maybe a bit more extroverted to start with like it just hasn't been that big a change for me and I'm extremely lucky in that respect and I suppose even talking about lessons taken from it is taking as a given as it is the case that my material needs are being met and all the rest of it. Like I doubt you learn very much from being terrified about getting evicted or anything. But yeah, but personally, it's been quite chill. I think the screening out world events thing is as always quite fraught for me. It's really hard to be aware of something and then put it aside, but managing as best I can, I guess. And when you look out at Ireland and sort of, I suppose, within how we're dealing with the pandemic and the leadership but also beyond that um you know it was interesting not interesting it was it was terrible when Catherine Noon uh, said that about Leo Radker I can't remember what the exact phrase was I'm sure you remember but it was uh something about being on the spectrum or something like that and uh, yeah. so I mean without and someone else called him robotic for having to get his his crib sheet out which I thought was really unfair myself personally I just thought it's it's a really complex time and I think if people need a bit of help with something on a piece of paper that's not a problem but what do you think about um apart from all that uh, Leo Varadkar, Owen Murphy and the kind of leadership that we've had in the last few years? Yeah I mean (laughs) they're finnick whales so I was never going to be a huge fan but I think right now the Brits are making them look pretty good. But then is that really the benchmark? But I think in so many ways, the problem in this country has been that we compare ourselves to them, which really isn't aspirational in any way. Yeah, so I'd like to see a shift towards a politics more willing to stand up for ourselves aside from anything, even simple things like making corporations pay proper taxes would make such a difference in our resources and therefore in every area of policy. 
like that's even without getting into any of the very long sentenced reforms that I would like to see happen on a global level. But yeah, I think there's been an intransigence in Irish politics for so long and that's bad because you don't get things like momentum in the UK where there's an exciting possibility of immediate electoral change. Like we haven't seen a platform like Labour's at the last UK election with that same possibility of succeeding, although tragically not in actuality. But then I think you do get more of a tendency to embrace radical or grassroots alternatives in Ireland as a result, because there's less of an illusion that you're going to achieve it through electoral politics. Like you'd never get all English people to just stop paying their water charges or something. Whereas even completely politically vanilla people like my parents, <laughs> you know, you'd rarely see them in a protest, let's put it that way, but you're yeah. not if, if no one else is. And I think there's that critical mass. Like, I agree with Extinction Rebellion on relatively little, but one thing I think they do have right is that you don't actually need that many people putting a huge amount of effort or a huge amount of advocacy into radical change. You just need enough that it doesn't look mad and then you can get kind of broader buy-in. So I hope we'll see more strains like that. Um, before you go, I just want to read out a, for people who haven't read the book yet a couple of lines. I hope you don't mind me doing that. I'm just going to find them here. Um, I much prefer I, other people doing it. I feel so subconscious. Oh, really? <laughs> this and the book is full of these lines. I just want to tell anybody who hasn't who hasn't read it who that just are so clever and so original. There was something Shakespearean about imperious men going down on you. The mighty have fallen. I mean. That's a great bit of uh, sex talk there, Nisha. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you talk a lot about sex in the book. That obviously, was that difficult? Because some people do find that difficult. I think I just tried to keep it in the same register as the rest of the language. So the sex isn't super figurative. There aren't loads of extensive metaphors and references to nature and to... <laughs> the various colours flashing before the narrator's eyes. But that's because that's not how she experiences anything. I think pretty much everything that happens to her physically in the book is this quite concise, not entirely unmetaphorical, but largely procedural laying out of what's happening. So it wouldn't make sense to be suddenly prudish about sex only when she's so unsentimental about everything else but then equally it wouldn't make sense to get too poetic about it that quote I read out about um a moment a a sexual moment in the book I find that a lot of your writing and I would say the same about Sally Rooney's of sex as well it comes to us without so much of the baggage that perhaps especially in Irish writing we're used to reading about where there might be shame but it's a different kind of shame is that something you're very conscious of and I think that's an age thing I definitely think it's you coming up without so much of the kind of um the influences that we were burdened with yeah I think my aim in writing sex was to not have it be a specific category of experience that warranted a different treatment to anything else the narrator does. So for the rest of the book, she is quite a curt, at times elaborate, but not overly, overly lyrical take on things. And I didn't see sex as something that needed any different lens. So I love passages like Garth Greenwell's of just this intensely gorgeous language, but it didn't make sense to do that. 
but then it didn't make sense to be circumspect about it either because she's not circumspect about anything. She's relentlessly blunt about the world as she sees it. So, yeah, I think part of dealing with integrating sex as it is in practice, <laughs> as just a thing that people do or don't, is just looking at the approach that's applied in the rest of the novel and um, doing that too. And it's not that it's not useful to have depictions of repression, but it's also useful to have depictions of what it can look like not to have that approach, either because that's some people's experience or because if it's not, part of why we read books is to see the possibility of things being different and to have someone help show us the way. Not that I would recommend Exciting Times as a manual for having a healthy sexual, emotional or any other adjective life, but... (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's useful to depict a particular corner of the world and then have other corners gradually filled in and hopefully one day we'll get a broad representation of most things that humans can go through bit by bit well, I think you're definitely going to be a part of it over the last sort of weeks and months of reading interviews with you in various international publications. It's been real pleasure and just wonderful to see another Irish voice like this. That's you're so accomplished and so interesting. And what you have to say does come from a sort of a different place. And I think the things that you were talking about are things we really need uh, to hear. So um, I really can't recommend exciting times enough to our listeners. And I know that lots of them I've read it already and I wish you the best, Nisha. Um, what's your day looking like today, the rest of it? Um, probably just catching up and writing. Um, maybe eat some fruit, go completely gung-ho, might watch an opera later. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I might watch an opera later, you see. That's why you're different to the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's been lovely talking to you, Nisha Dolan. Thank you. Thank you. That was Nisha Dolan there and her book is called Exciting Times and it's highly recommended. Now, Penguin Random House's Right Now programme 2020 aims to find, nurture and publish new writers from communities underrepresented on the nation's bookshelves. Excitingly, the programme is open to applicants resident in the Republic of Ireland for the first time this year. Now, there's still a long way to go in ensuring the representation of working class writers in publishing and the economic effects of the current pandemic will only serve to widen the gap. And of course, publishing is also missing many voices from diverse backgrounds. And the Right Now programme was set up by Penguin Random House to try and address this issue. Geraldine Quigley is from Derry and was chosen as a finalist for the programme in 2017. Her debut novel, Music, Love, Drugs, War, was published by PRH in January 2019. And Geraldine has become evangelical about spreading the word. So here she is, Geraldine Quigley from Derry. Geraldine, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Tell us about the programme, the Right Now programme. Right, so Right Now is a scheme that was set up by Penguin Random House in the UK. It started in 2016 and it was a response to an interview on Radio 4, really challenging publishers about the lack of diversity on bookshelves and the lack of diversity generally in publishing and how hard it is for people who are not represented. They actually make that breakthrough and get published. So as a result of that, they have actually, I mean, they have put quite a lot of investment into the scheme. Um, It started in 2016, which is when I applied. And they're very 
genuine about wanting to make a change in their own business and, and in, in their own company and attract employees as well as, as writers from a more, more diverse background. That's really what Right Now is about. And it's a mentoring scheme. So what they're offering really is that you apply and if you're successful, they will mentor you for a year, at least a year. It is a year, but I've seen it going on longer. Put it like that. Geraldine, can I just um, ask you about your own story? So you're in Derry and mm-hmm. tell us, you were working in a call centre. when you the time, yeah. You weren't a writer as such, but you obviously had aspirations. So I have been working in a call centre. It was 10 hour days. So the late, I was working like from morning till the earliest I would have finished was eight o'clock at night. So pretty exhausting job, minimum wage. I'd been made redundant twice in the past few years it wasn't the year before but it was the past few years but in my days off I was I was actually working on a novel um as much because well I mean I had been writing before anyway but I I had this piece of work um so I had a manuscript and I was sent this link to the right now scheme and uh and I applied for it because I met the criteria of being socioeconomically deprived. Now, that's their words. I think it's slightly altered this time. Um, but I was busted, and it was as simple as that. And at the time, I read through the criteria, and I matched this and this and this and this, and it was free. And I don't make any apologies for saying that. If it had have been a charge, if there had have been a charge for applying for this, I would not have applied because I couldn't afford it. And that meant that for me, there were absolutely no barriers, none at all for me applying to this scheme. And I went, I'm doing that. And I did. And I was invited along to the event. I mean, it was a complete shock because about 2,000 people applied. Um, There was 150 places for an event either in Manchester, London, or I can't remember where the other one was. It had been Bristol. I'd applied for Manchester because I had daughters living in Manchester, so I had somewhere to stay. And I, I got an invitation to go along to it. And it was 50 people in an event in Manchester where you met people from publishing. You met people who worked for Penguin. You met all the writers. You met agents. And you had a one-to-one sit-down meeting with an editor from, from Penguin who went through your work and discussed it with you. Now, that just in itself, it's such a prize. It's, it was just a complete wall falling away between me and the possibility of becoming published. And if I, I wasn't submitting anywhere. I mean, I wasn't, first of all, I didn't think my work was good enough. Secondly, every time I, applied, I looked for a competition, you had, there was a fee and I couldn't afford it. And, and it sounds really cheap, but, you know, austerity hit us really hard. And I had to make a decision whether I put a value enough on my work to send it off to some competition that I probably would not have even been placed in. So it just wasn't worth it. So the fact that Penguin made this completely open to someone like me was just incredible. So you got to finish your book, Geraldine, and it was like, and you were, your work was good enough. And in fact, people like Roddy Doyle think you're great. Um, tell us briefly about your novel that you wrote. Well, it's set in 1981 during the, the hunger strikes. And uh, it's based on my friends and the group of people. I mean, it's, it is fiction, but it is it's based around that group that we hung around with in 1981, who were very into music, very kind of punk, 
postponed. And we're in this very intense war situation that we were actively trying to avoid. Now, the book that I have written is a story about people not being in a position where they can't avoid it any longer, whereas we did. But but that was the story. And when I went over to, to Manchester and there was lots of, I was one of the older ones there, and there was lots of like young, there are loads and loads of women, because there's publishing is full of women, um, all writing about things like um, time travel and magic realism and this and that. And I was going, and people were like, you know, what are you working on? And I was like, it's 1981. You can see that look. <laughs> okay. And then they'd move away and I was just dying. And I was just dying inside thinking, what am I doing here? I really thought, you know, just, just, you know, brass this out, get through the day and then try and enjoy it, you know, because you've slipped down through some net here, you know, that's <laughs> just does not fit in. But I mean, that's not the way it worked out. And I, I, I was so shocked and I'm so shocked about, I mean, God love Roddy Doyle. He's such a lovely man. I've never met him, but we asked, would you, would you read it? And he just blew me away with what he said. Um, to say I didn't see this coming really is, is right. I didn't. You have a book on the shelves, you've glowing words Ooh. by Roddy Doyle, and it's all Ooh. thanks to right now. Um, I suppose you must have such an insight into now the barriers that face so many people, like not just uh, socioeconomically deprived or whatever people want to call it, people, working class people, people of colour, people with disabilities, that there's so much talent out there that doesn't get necessarily through the net, as you described it. Tell us about why right now is important then and, and, and why people should get involved and go and, and send their work. Publishing has to reflect our lives. It can't be this little bubble of white middle class London, you know, sort of like dynamic, you know, professional people or, or detectives or crime fighters. or It has to reflect real lives. And if they don't cast that web wide enough. It's not going to do that. And they're missing out on so many rich stories. And people are being diminished as writers because they're not being given those opportunities. And it's it's a real struggle for people. So it's important to use these schemes. That's what I think. And I know there are other schemes out there. And the thing that is different from right now is, well, I mean, people have really taken up the mantle of it and they've run with it. And there's things like, like the, the Common People Anthology, where Hitwell is really like, you know, she's offering this opportunity to people. And then there's the, the, good, the good Literary Agency, which is set up in the same way, you know, that they want people from an ethnic origin, you know, to have an opportunity to be represented and tell their stories. You have to apply. And all it takes, all they're looking for is a thousand words and a decent application form. And it's not a long application form. So don't be afraid to apply. That's what I want to say to people. Don't be. I came back from holidays. We went away to, I can't remember where we were. We came back and my laptop was broke. And I had this application to fill out. Um, my laptop was just gone completely. And it was like two days to fill out this application form. And I had to get my son in. I was that determined that I wasn't going to miss out on this. That I got my son to harvest my manuscript from the hard drive of the laptop. Um, to Barton, one of those old beige tower units that you used to get, like the, like a computer, yeah. um, three foot high. Um, get it put into that, hook it up to the TV in my living room and move my desk into the living room. 
And I, I was so angry. I was like, I typed it up on this, uh, the keyboard hooked up to the TV with this beige unit, you know, with my husband behind me laughing. I wasn't going to miss that opportunity. And mm. that's the way you need to approach this. If you have a thousand good words and a good idea and the nerve, then, then do it. Apply. And it's in the south of Ireland the first time this year as well, which is brilliant. It's yeah. brilliant. That's why we want to tell our listeners all about it. And maybe some listeners might not fall into the category, but they certainly might know some people who who do tick exactly. all those boxes and that they might exactly. encourage them to get involved. Um, Jodie, tell me the name of your book. Tell me, um, are you a typical dairy girl? That's the other thing I want to know. Uh, am I a typical dairy girl? I don't know. I define that. You know, dairy woman's a different thing. We are tough breed. We are, you know, and we will fight tooth the nails for what is ours. So I would say, yeah. I would You're a dairy that. woman. And I'm still in dairy and I'm still in the council house that I was brought up in. You know, we bought it. Um, it's not a council house anymore, obviously. But um, we never left. Um, I can't see myself ever moving from here. The book's called Music, Love, Drugs, War. Music, um, Love, Drugs, War. What a title. Yeah, and it reflects what we were into in 1981. <laughs> in that, that order. <laughs> Well, I am dying to read it, Geraldine. And I think you're an amazing ambassador for right now because you're exactly the kind of person who obviously has the talent, obviously has the wherewithal to do it, but wasn't getting the chance, wasn't getting the exposure and the barriers were all there, but you managed to get through because of these programmes. So well done. And also well done on then trying to encourage other people to do the same. Oh, yeah, I'm completely evangelical about it. But Russian, do you know what you need to realise? There's two different barriers there's the financial barrier where you haven't got the money to, to, for a word subscription or your laptop breaks and you can't replace it. Um, but there's also the confidence barrier that stops working class people applying for these things because they think their language isn't good enough. They think their writing isn't good enough. And that's just not true. And mm-hmm. even if there are little things that you're worried about, like grammar or whatever, editors sort that out. What do they want are your stories. That's mm-hmm. what they're looking for. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to advise everyone to go and buy Music, Drugs, Love, War. Have I got it in the right order? Music, Drugs, Love, War? Music, Love, Drugs, War, in that Music, order. Love, okay, Love before Drugs. <laughs> yeah, and War is just way, hey, way at the other side. Yeah. Um, I think everyone should go and buy it and support you and all the writers like you. And uh, we're going to give lots of details in a bit about how people can get involved with right now. But Geraldine, Dairy Woman, strong, tough. Uh, up there in Derry in your former council house. It was a delight to have you on the podcast. Roshin, it was great. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me on. And if you would like to find out more about right now, just go to the Penguin Random House website and all the details are there. And I hope it means that loads of new voices are heard in publishing. And that's it for today. Thanks to my guests, Nisha Dolan and Geraldine Quigley. And please do get in touch with anything you'd like us to cover, whether it's over on Instagram at IT Women's Podcast, the same address for Twitter. And you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle, that's me, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, stay safe and thank you very much for listening. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.